This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo Live. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Charles Hain. And I'm John Fusco. It's October 26th, 2017. And on this week's Halloween show, we share some of the best advice for aspiring horror directors, plus the lenses that are good enough to win their own Emmy Awards, a remembrance of cinematographer Walter Lasalle, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Now, being the last Thursday before Halloween, this is technically our Halloween show. And I think we'll never top last year's Halloween spooktacular. So I think uh, all of our sound effects this year will be practical effects. Anyone? I, 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 you know what? I think that Emily was really the master at that, and uh, I could contribute the uh, non-practical ones, but I'm just like not—that's not my gift. Mm, Emily Booter, R.I.P. Maybe she'll come back as a zombie for the Halloween show. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Anyway, so one thing we can say is that it seems like we've been getting ready for Halloween at the movies all year long. Back in April, Jordan Peele's Get Out became the second biggest R-rated horror movie ever in North America after The Exorcist. And last month, the It remake became the highest grossing horror film of all time. And hey, maybe this is the year I'll finally watch The Shining. You've still never watched The Shining? Yeah, I know. It's an ongoing theme on the podcast. I think you should just give up at this point. Maybe just like not watch it ever. You mean give up the ghost? Yeah. See? A Halloween show it is. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that, that pun would be funnier if you'd actually seen The Shining. <laughs> yeah. It's about ghosts. I know it's about ghosts. Oh, you do? I, I mean, it's about, and there's a rug. It's directed by Stanley Kubrick. Did there's you know a, <laughs> There's it's, a blowjob-giving bear the, It's or actually dog. about the Apollo moon landings. Yeah. Isn't that 2001? No, 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 no. I'm not even kidding. The Shining is about the moon landings. Stop it. The Shining is one long elaborate confession from Kubrick admitting to the world that he faked the moon landings. I swear to God. Danny Sweater, man. Danny Sweater. Right, had a well, rocket stop on spoiling. it. <laughs> if you're interested in The Shining, we literally have more posts on The Shining at nofilmschool.com than any other movie. Like, there are upwards of 50, so... Should we just rename the site on. KubrickFan.com? <laughs> Possibly. We'd get a lot of hits. Anyway, moving into the actual news, the 69th Nerd Emmys, or rather Engineering Emmy Awards, were handed out last night in Los Angeles. So cold. <laughs> Says a nerd. That's okay. I'm a nerd. Anyway, I'm going to be honest here and say that I don't fully understand how these are different than the Technology and Engineering Emmys that are usually handed out in April during NAB. But I do know that last night's awards are intended to honor people, companies, or organizations for developments in broadcast technology. So this year's Lifetime Achievement Award went to Leonardo Charlione. How is that Italian? Charlione. Charlione, who founded the Motion Picture Experts Group. You might not recognize that name, but I bet you'll recognize its acronym, MPEG. Yep, this guy basically set the standards for internet compression and invented the file formats that we all know and love. The Corporate Achievement Award went to Sony, which we learned was originally established in 1946 as the Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Corporation. 
Seems like a good year for Sony to get this award as they've released and are releasing plenty of cameras that might help them get them back on track with indie filmmakers, as you will soon hear in the gear section. There were seven engineering Emmys awarded. Most notably for us was the one that went to Ari's Alexa camera system, because duh, and also the two that went to Canon and Fujinon's 4K zoom lenses. Our writer and DP Loretta Prevost did a really interesting in-depth story and appreciation of the Canon CineZooms in honor of this announcement. The awards went to the entire line, including Canon's CNE, CineServo, and CompactServo lines, part of which is the world's longest 4K ultra telephoto zoom lens, the CineServo 50-2000mm ultra telephoto zoom lens. Poof, mouthful. In Loretta's post, she spoke to some Canon folks and several shooters and people who are using these lenses in the field about why they're such a big deal. I thought one of the most interesting interviewees was Al Berman, who executive produced Nat Geo's Earth Live. That show used 59 cameras in 25 locations on six continents, making it the world's biggest live show to date. And Berman said he's never experienced a lens that's better for wildlife than the CineServo 52000mm. Am I saying that right? Yeah, 50 to 1,000 millimeter. I mean, that's a monster zoom lens. Yeah, it's that's, insane. that's the whole point. Um, anyway, it's a great article for Lens Geeks. Sorry, maybe another diss. But like I say this all with love. Like, geeks and nerds are our people. Um, Ge- geeks bite the heads off chickens. I just I just want to remind you. <laughs> Is that like another Kubrick reference? No. Do you guys never heard that rumor when you were in elementary school? No. Uh, All right, moving on. John's still in (laughs) elementary school. Anyways, we will link to that article in this week's podcast post along with everything else that we talk about on the show. Next up in news, we often joke about having a segment called Netflix News on the show as the streaming behemoth. That's my word of the day, behemoth, because it sounds like a Halloween character. Anyway... (laughs) Netflix always seems to be making headlines, but this week our streaming news is all about Amazon. And some of this news also falls into another running theme on recent shows, the Hollywood is falling apart category. Stepping back, you may remember that last month, none other than Hong Kong auteur Wong Kar Wai announced his foray into television with a series called Tong Wars for Amazon. Now the fate of that series and every other one in development feels somewhat unknown, as Amazon Studios' entire executive team, and thus likely its strategy, is turning over. Earlier this month, Morgan Wandell, who had headed up international productions for Amazon, left for Apple, which was a coup for Apple, who's been trying to step up its competition in the original content game. Last week, we reported that the top head of Amazon Studios, Roy Price, had resigned after sexual harassment charges. Now, in the wake of that announcement, Joe Lewis, who headed comedy, drama, and VR development, quit, and so did Conrad Riggs, who had overseen the growth of Amazon's unscripted programming. So these shifts are happening both on the scripted and unscripted sides, and we don't yet know exactly what this will mean for those of you making content, but it's certainly some kind of major overhaul, and we will keep our eyes on it. Meanwhile, Amazon Video Direct, which is a separate division from Amazon Studios, made a splash last year by letting users monetize their own videos and offering distribution deals to projects that screamed at film festivals. And now it's dipped its toes into financing short films. The service funded three shorts from Funny or Die, which will now premiere on Amazon Prime on November 10th. And if this experiment goes well, it could be great news for indie filmmakers looking to make shorts with guaranteed streaming distribution. Finally in headlines, we're saying goodbye this week to Academy Award-winning cinematographer Walter LaSalle, who died on Monday at age 90. I wrote our obituary on NoFilmSchool.com and learned a lot about his fascinating life. He's best known for shooting Zorba the Greek, which won him the Oscar for Best Black and White Cinematography, and for the five other collaborations he did with Zorba's director, 
Michael Kokoyanis, as well as for his longtime collaboration with American director James Ivory, who he also shot six films for. LaSalle has over a hundred camera credits, but his own life story seems worthy of a movie. His father shot industrial films in Berlin, where LaSalle was born, until the Jewish family was forced to flee from the growing Nazi threat in 1939. They went to London, where LaSalle forwent formal education, no film school, to get into the film business himself, and he started as a clapper boy at the UK's Riverside Studios. When the studio went bankrupt, he picked up a camera and began to shoot freelance. By the early 50s, he became one of the founding members of the UK's low-budget free cinema movement, characterized by its use of non-actors and portrayal of the English working class, which, by the way, still goes on in films today like, you know, I, Daniel Blake, and others that have been very celebrated recently. So this was all documented in LaSalle's 1987 autobiography called Itinerant Cameraman. But even after he wrote it, he worked as a shooter for almost another two decades. Did you guys also hear that Benson died this week? Robert Guillaume? Robert Guillaume. He was an Emmy Award uh, winning actor, and I always liked him. I'm, John probably won't remember his, his character, you know, defining role as Benson, which like... Thinking back on it was like a little bit racist. It was like the black butler. I mean, probably more than a little bit racist. Everything in the 80s was a little bit more racist little bit than racist. we remember. But he, it was, he was so good on the show. I loved that show. Anyway, you though, John, and the rest of you might remember the Lion King. He was the voice of Rafiki, the monkey in the tree. That's a little bit racist, too. Still, I really loved him. Anyway, all right. Hollywood, you let him down. Maybe. R.I.P. Robert Guillaume and Walter LaSalle, and thank you for your work. Moving on to gear news. So the big gear news of the week is the update of the Sony A7R. Uh, We've been using the A7R Mark II, and now the A7 Mark III has come out today. So filmmakers tend to prefer the A7S over the A7R because the A7S, while it has fewer megapixels, it's way better in low light with like 400,000 ISO, which is way more useful to a filmmaker. However... Uh, the 42-megapixel beast that is the Mark III is going to catch up a little bit in low light, getting to 30,000 ISO. And it should have a few other things that make it more interesting to filmmakers. The biggest upgrade is in autofocus. So the A9, the big $4,500 flagship that came out earlier this year, has amazing autofocus. And we're starting to see some of those features trickle down to the $3,200 A7R Mark III. Some of the demos already out online are really amazing. And autofocus is really one of the key battlegrounds in the video market these days. For around three or $4,000, everybody's got a camera that looks amazing. So you're, all the manufacturers are trying to find a feature that really makes them stand out. And autofocus, which is something no filmmaker would have touched five years ago, is now a compelling feature that a lot of people are taking very seriously. Uh, the a 7 Our Mark III update coming out now also probably means we should be on the lookout for an A7S Mark III update sometime soon. Our next bit of gear news this week is some sneak peeks from Adobe about features that aren't quite here yet, but are coming in the hopefully near future. So last week at Adobe Max, they shared obviously the big releases we talked about on the podcast last week. But then at the end of the conference, they shared a few sneak peeks of upcoming features. And the buzziest new one is called Cloak, which is like content-aware fill, but for motion. So, for instance, let's say you're shooting like a beautiful old church, but there's like a modern light post ruining your church. A haunted church. (laughs) 
with a non-haunted light post in front, and you want to you want it to be an entirely haunted shot. Uh, with cloak, you can draw a little line around the light post and click, and it disappears. This is super cool. We've seen a lot of tech demos of this from high-end manufacturers for a while, but Adobe rolling this kind of stuff out into After Effects or Premiere would be amazing and would uh, really change the game in terms of like locations you could even choose to shoot. Uh, so, Adobe, you've shown it to us. Roll it out soon. Last up is a new app from a company called Wonder Unit, Storyboarder. Uh, Storyboarder is a free app designed to help filmmakers turn their storyboards into animatics as simply as possible. Now, traditionally, you could always fire up After Effects or Premiere and edit storyboards, but then you have to go back into the app you drew them in, like Surface Ink or whatever it is, and change them if you want to edit the original drawing and then go back into Premiere and back and forth and it's annoying. Storyboard puts it all into a simple, dedicated tool that allows you to do both the drawing and the animating in the same app, which makes it way easier when you're in the middle of an animation and you realize that that means you have to change the drawing. So hopefully this is going to make it much easier for filmmakers to make animatics when pre-producing their projects. Definitely worth a look. And we'll have you back for an Ask No Film School question right after this short break. Thanks, Charles. Vimeo Live is the latest innovation from our favorite video hosting platform. Now, you simply don't have to worry about running a low-quality live stream ever again. With Vimeo Live, you get pristine quality across all devices. You can broadcast your live events in full HD 1080p and enjoy built-in cloud transcoding so your viewers can watch in stunning high quality, perfectly fit for their device and bandwidth. You're also sure to breathe easy thanks to reliable features and more controls. Share securely with privacy options, enjoy live chat support, and get more flexibility with RTMP without hidden overage charges. What's more, you can engage your audience from anywhere, embed the player wherever you choose, see who's attending your event by enabling email capture in the player, turn on live chat, and view live and archive stats to track performance. Finally, Vimeo Live allows you to have one home for all your video needs. Get the best of Vimeo across your workflow for live and recorded videos. Manage and store in one place, replace archived videos with files in up to 4K, create review pages, and more. In an offer exclusive to the No Film School podcast listeners, Vimeo is offering 10% off live pro or live business accounts. Sign up using the promo code NFSLIVE. This discount offer expires 12-31-2017, is limited to one use per person, may not be combined with other offers, and will be applied to the first year of your subscription, after which time your subscription will automatically renew at the regular retail price each year until you cancel. So we usually get our Ask No Film School questions from the No Film School boards or reader emails, but in a break from tradition, I have a question for Charles this week. Wee! <laughs> I started editing a project several years ago in Final Cut 6, not even 7. Um, so th- like 15 years ago. It wasn't that long ago. I liked 6. I just never bothered with 7. You know, I'm one of those. Like, I liked it. It worked well. And then X was terrible, and I just missed 7 altogether. Anyway, the project has become relevant again, and I want to pick it back up, but I'm hesitant to migrate to Premiere because I already did all of my syncing and a ton of logging in Final Cut. So I'm wondering if there's a way to migrate my project to Premiere and keep all of the log notes. Liz, not only is that a great question, (laughs) it is a question I get asked all the time. So, yes, there's absolutely a way to do it, 
but you should really do it soon because that project is not going to open if you upgrade your software to High Sierra. So wait, wait, wait. If I upgrade my computer to High Sierra, Sierra, I won't even be able to open Final Cut 6. Yeah. And the thing is, is you can't just open your old Final Cut 6 project in Premiere. You have to get it open in Final Cut and make a specific kind of export before you can do anything with it. And that export's called an XML. So XML is extensible markup language. It's just a language for writing files in. And it's the language that's used by almost all the software to talk to each other. So if you want to get a timeline from Premiere to Resolve, use XML. If you want to get a that same timeline back, you use XML. But Final Cut used XML in a really fascinating way. It could do timelines, but it could also do your whole project, including bins and timelines all together in one massive XML. So if you deselect all in Final Cut, so nothing is selected, no timeline, no clips, and you export an XML, and then you bring that XML into Premiere, the whole shebang comes over. Your bins come over, your clips come over, your timelines come over, and and we tested it just for you because you specifically mentioned your log notes. Your log notes make it over. So the whole party happens. But you need Final Cut 6 or 7 to do it. You can't open the project in Premiere if you haven't made that XML. So before you upgrade to High Sierra, any of you who still have any projects in Final Cut that you might someday want to update, go open them in Final Cut right now and make an XML just so you've got it. Be sure you deselect all first, and then someday in the future, if you ever want to touch that project again, but you've already upgraded to High Sierra, you can bring that XML straight into Premiere, and uh, Premiere has put obviously a lot of work into making it a efficient and painless process because Premiere would like all of you Final Cut people to move over to them. I know it's well past time. So thanks, Charles. That's very encouraging. My pleasure. And now on to movies opening this week and TV shows, I should say. Arrival is going to be coming to Amazon Prime Instant on October 28th. Will it be arriving on Amazon Instant? It might be. Hmm. Even if it's not making great numbers at the box office, Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 is currently making waves among cinephiles across the country. He's clearly one of the world's most talented science fiction filmmakers today. And if you need further proof of this, then get yourself to Amazon and watch Arrival immediately. Yeah, for those of you that aren't quite following this, Arrival was Villeneuve's first foray into sci-fi before he got the big break of making Blade Runner 2049. Well, Enemy was kind of dealing with science fiction films, yeah. Um, So he's been dancing around the genre for a while. Yeah, he's definitely a genre dude. And his next movie, I don't know if it's going to be his next movie, but he's also in line to direct Dune next, which is fucking going to be crazy. Anyways, Arrival tells the story of linguistics professor Louise Banks, who, when 12 mysterious spacecrafts appear around the world, is tasked with interpreting the language of the apparent alien visitors. Arrival stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, and Forrest Whitaker. We have an interview with Oscar-nominated cinematographer Bradford Young, who made history last year as the first African-American to earn that honor, which Liz conducted. You can read that interview in the article accompanying the podcast. That was one of my favorite interviews of last year. Didn't you also interview the screenwriter of Arrival? No, I don't think so. Someone did. I don't think it was me. Maybe I did. I don't know. I really think you did. Um, moving on to Netflix. Stranger Things 2 is coming out on October 27th. Yes! The wait is finally over. The new season of Stranger Things drops this Friday. 
Netflix's Banner series follows the lives of a group of young friends whose small town is constantly seemingly under attack by a supernatural force, and they are the only ones who can sense and fight off their impending doom. It stars Winona Ryder and David Harbour and has really launched the careers of Millie Bobby Brown, Finn Wolfhard, Charlie Heaton, Gatton Matarazzo, I think his name is, Gatton, the guy with the lisp. He's great. The show is so popular that, as we mentioned last week, it seems like Netflix actually planned to raise their prices around its release to force customers to stay on board. Not like you wouldn't anyways, let's be real. I'm excited to see what the Duffer Brothers, who created the series, have in store for us for season two. And I haven't told you this, Liz, but we'll actually be running an exclusive video interview from them and Technicolor later in the week. So stay tuned for that. Sweet. Do you know, are they going to drop the whole series at once? Yeah. I'm so excited. I think Netflix has it. They always do that, right? I was going back and forth with someone about it this week. Yeah. Well, I think that might be my Friday night, folks. Yeah. I've had people tell me that, you know, this year for Halloween, since it's on a Tuesday, they're just going to stay in and watch the entire thing in one sitting. Oh, that's a good idea. Maybe wait until actual Halloween. Some of us got to work, though, because it's on Tuesday. Well, you're going to be shooting your movie. Yeah. Whatever. I like to stay up all night long. Coming to HBO is Split on October 28th. In case you missed it, M. Night Shyamalan is back, baby. Split (laughs) came out way earlier this year, back in January, a month where movies usually go to die. Spooky, but it thrived. In this film, three girls are kidnapped by a man with a diagnosed 23 distinct personalities. They must try to escape before the apparent emergence of a frightful new 24th. James McAvoy plays that schizo, and the witches Anya Taylor-Joy also stars. Crazily enough, Shyamalan is currently working on a crossover between the characters of this film and one of his earlier great works, the underrated Unbreakable. That film, entitled Glass, which is a material that is in fact breakable, is slated for release in 2019. And having arrived at theaters earlier this week, the work is here. It's a documentary set inside a single room in Folsom Prison where three men from the outside participate in a four-day group therapy retreat with a group of incarcerated men for a real look at the challenges of rehabilitation. It's one of the most critically acclaimed documentaries of the year, and it won the Grand Jury Award at South by Southwest, as well as having been nominated for an IFP award. I have heard more good things about this movie. I mean, people just seem totally affected by it, so... I still haven't seen it, but I'm pretty excited. It was directed by Jairus McCleary and Gethin Aldous, and Oakley got a chance to interview them about the project back at South by Southwest, so we will link to that interview on the site. And on Friday, October 27th, you can see The Square. If you listen to this show on a weekly basis, like I do, I'm not sure what more I can say about this movie that I haven't already said. I will say that's one of my top five favorite films of the year and that Ruben Osland is a director that everyone needs to start to get familiar with if they aren't already. I'm a little bit surprised at how low the numbers are for listening to this podcast and some of the articles that I've written about The Square because this dude is really amazing. And I think that, like, I don't know, he could be a really great influence for young filmmakers and for people who are just starting out. His films are completely unique in that they present these deep, complex themes that many of us seem to encounter on an everyday basis, and he puts them on screen in a manner that is thrilling, hilarious, and horrifying at the same time. This is true of both his previous film, Force Majeure, and this film, The Square. 
which follows a modern art museum curator who goes through a chaotic existential crisis after he is robbed in broad daylight. I also just realized that in setting up the podcast on Monday, I said blind daylight, and I don't think that that's actually a term. I think it's just broad daylight. So Yeah, could be blinding daylight. Maybe. In any case, I apologize. In that episode that we released on Monday, I interviewed Ausland, and I definitely recommend giving that a listen if you haven't already. Again, he's a teacher and a philosopher, and it's just fascinating listening to how his brain works. The film stars Claus Bang, and for the first time, Ausland worked with an international cast, including Elizabeth Moss, Dominic West, and noted monkey impersonator Terry Notary. <laughs> Monkeys play a huge part in the movie. Practical effects. Thematically and, yeah. And, uh, I guess physically? Yeah, physically. Thematically, physically. I think Elizabeth Moss is the Michael... Oh my god, what's his name? Fassbender? No, the guy that was in every single movie last year and we talked about him so many times. The actor that's like always working in everything. Yes! Michael Shannon? She's like in everything and everywhere and working her ass off. It's mighty impressive. Now we've got some spooky, scary, actually some pretty cool grant deadlines for you. First up, the California Documentary Project Research and Development Grant has a due date on November 1st. These grants are intended for films that have some kind of connection to California and strengthen the understanding of the humanities for the state, and they range up to 10 grand, which is pretty great for a development grant. It's for media productions in their earliest stages, and the projects must actively involve at least three humanities advisors to help frame and contextualize subject matter throughout the research and development phase. The California Documentary Project is also offering a production grant with the same deadline, November 1st. So if you have a work in progress for a film that features humanities in the state of California, this grant can range up to $50,000 and it helps propel the projects toward completion. For this one, they must be in the production stage, have a work in progress to submit, and actively involve, same as the last one, at least two humanities advisors to help frame and contextualize the subject matter. And the Tribeca Film Institute All Access Grant has a deadline of November 6th. In addition to getting $15,000, five U.S.-based narrative filmmakers and five U.S. documentary filmmakers will work with TFI to develop professional relationships within the film industry. Tribeca All Access seeks feature-length narrative and doc submissions from established and emerging filmmakers whose team includes a director, producer, or screenwriter from a community that is statistically underrepresented in the film industry. Projects can be in any stage of development from treatment screenplay to post-production. Projects of any genre and or budget range are welcome to apply. And in addition, Tribeca Film Institute also has a Latin America Fund deadline on November 6th. TFI's Latin America Fund offers up to $12,000 for films of any genre that push the boundaries of artistic storytelling. And this fund supports innovative filmmakers living and working in the Caribbean, Mexico, Central and South America, who are working on feature-length scripted documentary or doc fiction hybrid films. Funded films should be story-driven and in the advanced stages of development, production, or post-production, with no existing U.S. or Latin American distribution in place. And for festival deadlines, on Halloween, the scary city of Atlanta has a film festival deadline. It's not really a scary city, but, you know, it's a fun city. So this is their late deadline. Their festival takes place April 13th to the 22nd in Atlanta. This is actually the 42nd year of that film festival. It's one of the Academy Award qualifying festivals. 
And of course, has it's been named one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee and one of the top 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. It presents local inter- and international works selected from over 6,000 submissions representing 40 plus countries. And also it has some small but sweet cash prizes. And also with a deadline on Halloween is the Cleveland International Film Festival. This is the late deadline. It takes place April 4th to the 15th, 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio. It's been running for 41 years, and it's held by the Cleveland Film Society. It was recognized as one of the 50 leading film festivals in the world by IndieWire, as well as being the USA Today runner-up for Best Film Festival in the Country. They accept web series and new media content free of charge, which is pretty cool. And they have tons of great cash prices that go up to $15,000. You can check out their site to see all the prices and categories because they're extensive, cover a lot of ground, and they're pretty big. And finally, the Athens International Film and Video Festival has a deadline on November 1st. This takes place April 9th to the 15th, 2018 in Athens, Ohio. This is its 45th year running. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the short narrative and animated short categories. And it has cash prizes of $1,000 that go to Best Feature Documentary, Short Documentary, Experimental, Feature Narrative, Short Narrative, and Animation. So best of any of those categories, you get a grant. And if you've always wanted to go to Athens, Ohio, now is your chance. For that kind of cash, I'd go. And now, in honor of Halloween, we're dedicating this week's Weekly Words of Wisdom to Weekly Words of Witchdom. (laughs) I like that pun, but what if we did... Witchly, witch of witchly to witchly, witchly. Witch? So, like, weekly words of wisdom becomes witchly, witch of witch. That makes no sense. Okay. Thought it was pretty good. Witchly yeah. words of witch? I'm kidding. It's not, obviously, that's not a good pun. <laughs> I still don't understand why you always go, wee! It's Halloween. It's spooky. No? It's, so again, this is what Emily used to do, and now that she's dead, I think... It just, sounds like just... you're going down a slide. Every time you do it, I just picture oh, you like going down a like... slide with your arms up in the air, and oh, you're so I was happy. trying to be like, Halloween! Yeah, it's more, like... it's more exuberant than oh. spooky, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad I'm not scary. Anyway... Okay. Not like Emily. Not she like was Emily. terrifying. She was <laughs> terrifying. She was scary. Rest in peace. So anyway, these are some of our best horror-related posts. Now, I should preface this by saying that this is probably the genre we cover most on the site, and a search of the word horror alone brings up over 500 posts. I especially want to recommend one John put together last year called Everything You Need to Know to Be a Horror which compiles and categorizes many of these articles from over the years. But, as I said, we will point out some specific ones today. I don't even remember that article. Feels like so long ago. It's really good. I reviewed it today. I'll have to read it. Anyways, my words come from Jeremy Saulnier, who, yes, is known for his ultra gory indie thriller films, but also made a straight up horror film called Murder Party for his debut feature. That movie is nuts. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but it's nuts. Anyways, last year I attended this great screenwriting panel at the Lower East Side Film Festival where Saulnier explained his really fascinating approach to writing story structure. He said, I try to deviate from standard structure. Green Room was an exercise in tension building. I try not to meet expectations or check the boxes off of what happens in each act, but swerve very violently away from what you think would happen, dig into that, and write myself into corners. The challenge isn't this overall 
how should I make this intense structure? It's how do I keep going with this? And when I find myself without a solution, just sit there and invest in it. That's when people die in green room because I couldn't think of any way out. I love that idea, and I'm definitely going to use it as a prompt of sorts in the future. I think anyone could use that as a prompt. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to make a joke about a murder party, but it's just not funny. Anyway, Sophia Harvey did a great four-part series for us last year called How to Create Convincing Practical Effects for Your Indie, and one of them focuses on a crucial element for horror films, gore. Not Al Gore, but gore. Was that a good one? Gore. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. Oh, I thought you were talking about the joke. Yeah. Um, the I'm sound, trying e- to the do sound, sound effect effects. was fine. <laughs> Gore. Ooh, that was much better. <laughs> anyway, we actually have uh, more than one post on the site about creating and using fake blood, but this one gets much more in depth. Yes, there's an, an entire section on blood, but Sophia also gets heavy into how to build human body parts for prosthetics. I was going to say, what human body part? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you want to cut off in your horror film. Yep. I actually do that in my movie. Really? Which part? Uh, That one one prosthetic part of the human body, the male anatomy, that would probably really suck to have. Oh, if I could do do a sound effect of a guillotine. It's actually scissors. (laughs) Ew. You don't see it happen on screen, but... Chop, chop. That's actually a good uh, note for horror is keep your stuff off screen and let the audience use their imagination as to what that could look like. Implication goes a long way. One of my favorite low-budget tricks that Sophia shared was using beige stockings to make organs. She said you can fill the stockings with any kind of stuffing, tie them at the ends, and coat two or three times with liquid latex, and then paint them... And then you can kind of stretch and shape the stockings to whatever kind of look you want. This is a pretty cool uh, low-budget trick. And then my words this week came from horror tour Rob Zombie, who I fucking love, and I feel like he doesn't get enough respect. And I feel like he might not get enough respect because he renamed himself Zombie. But he's great, and he clearly has a real passion for the genre. And, uh, and zombies. And zombies. Clearly. In an interview a few years ago for the release of his film 31, he said this. The main takeaway is to just get the film made. As stupid as it sounds, it's so easy to take meetings and talk and develop and take more meetings. Then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, it's been two years and we still haven't made a movie yet. That's my only goal, to get it going. And uh, it's so simple, but we can't hear it often enough. Just go make the movie. Zombie made eight films in something like 14 years. He just keeps going, making more stuff. And I feel like some of that is probably from the music industry where the overhead isn't as high to make an album. Like you can go in your basement with your friends and record an album. So if you have the discipline, you can do it. And he probably brings that energy to the film industry. Um, Part of it helps that he has a built-in fan base. Part of it that the genre has a built-in fan base. But uh, you got to really respect the dedication to just like stop taking meetings and start making movies. I really want you to play out the show with a Rob Zombie song. I mean, you'd have to be Dragula. <laughs> For shout-outs this week, I want to give a shout-out to Nora Tuomi's The Breadwinner, which just won the grand prize at the inaugural Animation Is Film Festival held in L.A. last weekend. This is a brand-new festival and America's first serious animation festival, which is in good keeping with the trend we've been seeing of very sophisticated animated movies emerging in the last several years. 
The Breadwinner premiered at TIFF and was EP'd by Angelina Jolie. And it's just a beautiful film about a young girl who disguises herself as a boy to help feed her family during Taliban rule in Afghanistan. I interviewed the director, Nora Twomey, this week, and we'll be putting that up on the site in time for the film's theatrical release next month. And now for some really sad and scary news. Uh, Scary for Halloween! Yeah, exactly. Um, We are not going to be doing Indie Film Weekly anymore at all. It's over forever. Oh my god, John is such a big fat liar. He's actually really fat. You guys should see him. He's super Uh, fat. Well, it's not actually forever. It's actually just for the next two weeks. We won't be doing Indie Film Weekly because I'm going to be gone and in pre-production and then in production for my short which i talked about before so not gonna be here it's too much to do (laughs) as you all know so even though we won't be putting up these indie film weekly podcasts every week we'll still be putting up interview podcasts the next two mondays um so yeah brand new interview podcasts yeah so i mean now getting into those interview podcasts the first one if you weren't scared enough by this episode if you're not peeing your pants right now get ready to pee your pants next monday because i sat down with alexander o philippe the director of 7852 which is a documentary about not psycho but just one scene in psycho which is the shower scene of course he goes over other bits of psycho too but it predominantly focuses on 78 cuts and 52 takes that were necessary to complete alfred hitchcock's most famous scene the shower scene which actually took three days to shoot no took seven days to shoot so we get really deep into hitchcock and into psycho in our interview and it's just like a really great discussion especially for anyone who's an avid fan of hitchcock uh Lots of trivia in there for you to gobble up and then spit out because it's Halloween and you can tell people things about Psycho to scare them. That's going to be a perfect episode for the Monday before Halloween. And as scary as it is for me to be here without you for a week and a half, I'm super, super excited for you, John. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be good. So meanwhile, in the next Monday, I think it's November 6th, the Monday after Halloween, That Monday will begin the week that Doc NYC opens up, and my interview will be with the co-director and two cinematographers from a film that's playing at that festival, but also opened theatrically and on Netflix last week. It's called One of Us, and I actually spoke about it on last week's show. It's a very compelling documentary by two of my favorite directors, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, who made Jesus Camp, Detropia, and Norman Lear, Just Another Version of You. One of Us is about three people who are trying to leave the community of ultra-religious Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn that they were raised in. And it's a particularly fascinating discussion on the podcast because, as I mentioned, we also had two of the DPs there. And we talked mainly about how they were not welcome to film in the community. One of the characters was even anonymous for much of the movie and couldn't be shown. So they had to develop all kinds of tactics and strategies for shooting very inconspicuously. It's going to be a great conversation, so look out for that in two Mondays. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this show and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And we encourage you to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, rate us on iTunes, and 
stay in touch, send John some love and support for his film. Uh, I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Was that scary? <laughs> and Charles is at Charles Hayne. We are all at No Film School. See you in three weeks. Happy Halloween. Happy <laughs> Halloween.